Pastor Brian said we had a great time at Presbytery Camp this week. Brian, I was remembering actually just a second ago, our first conversation ever was at the Culver's in Overland Park. You showed up in a, in a sport coat, which might have been the last time before you were here that I saw you in a sport coat. Um, and I mean that as a compliment to you. Um, and you mentioned at that, that first meeting that you had an interest in organizing a Presbytery-wide camp. I don't know if you remember that or not, but that was one of the first things we talked about. And that was 2007-ish, is that right? And it's been happening ever since then, and it's a joy at this stage in life to having been a part of it as long as I have, to see now kids that were campers come back and serve as volunteers and do a bang-up job and kill it, just doing awesome, and so it's just a privilege to be a part of that. We had a great time this week. If you happen to be on Facebook, I'd direct you to Pastor Brian's Facebook uh, site, and you'll see a, a summer link of videos, of picture, picture montage that'll give you an, a little bit of an insight into what our week was like, but it'd be love for you to check that out. It's our privilege this morning to open God's Word together, my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me in them to Psalm 80? It's going to take me a second to get situated here. Psalm 80 seems to be answering a question that I'm not sure we may be in the habit of asking. The question is this, how can we pray for the church? Not just our church, but for the gathered people of God around the world and all those who will come after us. Especially as we see God's people struggling to be faithful followers of Jesus in a variety of ways, how do we pray? It's a question I want us to consider this morning. And as we open Psalm 80, I want to kind of give you a little bit of the lay of the land in terms of the structure. Interestingly, Psalm 80 was written as a song. It's, the Psalms are a collection of, of God's, peop, God's hymns of given to his people or, prayer, or prayers given to his people. And it's actually structured not unlike we're used to music being structured in today's day and age. And what I mean by that is this. If you look with me, verses 1 and 2 together sort of sit as the first stanza, if you will. And then verse 3, we see this chorus. It's probably blocked out by itself. That becomes the chorus that we see in verses 3, 7, and 19. So it repeats itself, like, like again, like we're used to singing, singing songs today. And then verses four through six sort of form the second stanza, if you will, of the song. And then verses eight to 13 separate, separate out as the third, with, with the last bunch, with 14 to 18, sort of acting as the bridge, that piece that stands out from both the chorus and the, the, um, the verses to sort of to drive us home to, to the meaning of, true meaning of the text. And so it's interesting to see it in those contexts. So as I read it, imagine it, if you will, in that context. I'm not going to sing it to you, I promise you that. But I want you to hear now Psalm 80. Hear now as I read the word of the Lord. Psalm 80, beginning in verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of, t- bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of, con- of, con- of, of, con- of, excuse me, you make me an object of, you make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you, you drove it out, you drove out the nations and planted it. You clean. Excuse me. You cleared, you cleared the ground for it. It took... Brian, do you have your bigger text? I'm, I apologize. I brought the wrong Bible this morning. No, that's all right. Thank you. I apologize, y'all. I'm going to start over. 
so we can hear it, if that's all right. Not, we can never have too much of God's word, I promise. Here we go, I can see this much better. Thank you, Brian. Starting from the beginning, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who, sit in th- you, are, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt and you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent on its branches to the sea and its roots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all the more, all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, they have made it per- they, and may they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn, turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let me pray as we consider these words together. Gracious God, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that you are present with us by your Spirit. We believe that you are the one who shapes us, who changes us, who meets us where we are. We pray, especially this morning, that you would give us understanding of this text. Not only give us understanding in terms of give us content and knowledge, but would you shape not only how we think, but shape what we love. May we love you more, may we love your church more, and may we long for her to be what you would have her to be. Would you lead us now as we consider these things? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's been a difficult few years for the church and for her people. If you've been paying attention to the news, you may know what I'm talking about. In the last several years, a well-known pastor and Midwestern pastor has been accused of actually seeking out someone to kill his former son-in-law in the midst of facing his own allegations of financial impropriety and other abuses of power. Another well-known pastor and speaker, again, that would be familiar to many of us, has been connected with the covering up of child abuse within his congregation. A Christianity Today-sponsored podcast detailed, detailed years and years of verbal and spiritual abuse within a large West Coast church. And most recently, a report was released outlining hundreds and hundreds of cases of abuse within a large denomination that have been covered up on the advice of the lawyers of that denomination. Given these sad realities and all of the hurt and the, the hundreds and hundreds of stories that are behind these, how do we pray? How do we pray? It's a question I want us to bring to Psalm 80 this morning. Now to get there, I'm going to ask you to bear with me for a moment because I want to give you a brief history of the people of God in just a few minutes. Some few thousand years before Jesus was born, God called a man named Abraham. At the time, his name was Abram. And he told him that he will make a great nation of Abraham. 
Now, Abram and Sarah's wife were, were well along in years, older than just about all of us, but yet didn't have any children. But God, by his grace, gave them a son, Isaac. Isaac, in turn, was given a son named Jacob. And Jacob was given 12 sons. Now, Jacob, later in life, God renamed him Israel. And his 12 sons grew from just being a large family to being 12 tribes of people and eventually became the nation of Israel, named after their father. Now, just a, just a, a word on the, the nature of the 12 tribes. So each tribe was named after a son, but it got a little funky one of the, and because each of the tribes were given an allotment of land except for one. So the, the land of God that God had promised his people were divided up among 12 tribes still, but two of the tribes came from Joseph, whereas Levi's tribe didn't get an allotment because they were the priestly class and they were spread out throughout the territories. So you have 12 regions of the, of the land that God had promised to his people became the nation of Israel. Eventually the people cried out for a king and God gave them a king named Saul who did not work out so well. He was followed though by David who became the hero of God's people. He expanded the, the land of the people of God greatly, and he was, he was seen as well-respected. He was called a man after God's own heart. But then his son Solomon, during his, during his reign, the temple was completed. The temple that became the center part of the worship of God's people because the Ark of God, the Covenant was there, the place that was God's presence among his people, took rest in this temple. But Solomon's son Rehoboam made a horrible political decision that led to the breaking apart of the kingdom of, of the kingdom of Israel. So instead of having one unified kingdom of 12 tribes, what you had was a northern kingdom, which consisted mostly, for the most part of 10 of those tribes, and a southern kingdom, which compo- was composed of Judah and sort of Benjamin and sort of not. Now the problem with this, you, you, you may be wondering, why was this an issue? Aside from the fact that the people of God were rendered into two, which they shouldn't have been, in the north, the, the new king of the north had an idea because he was worried about his people traveling southward to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom to worship God the way God had intended. And so what he had the brilliant idea to do, said tongue-in-cheek, was that he was going to make two golden calves to give his people, his own people, their own place to worship so they wouldn't have to venture into the southern kingdom because he's trying to hold his ten tribes together. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that the part of the problem with this is God said, don't do that. Don't make idols and don't bow down and worship them because I am a jealous God. And we'll come back to that in a moment, but that's, that's the situation. But we ask, why, why, why does this matter? Well, look back with me, if you will, again at verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, we hear God referred to as the shepherd of Israel. And then that is the parallel statement that follows it says, you who lead Joseph like a flock. So we have Israel, then Joseph. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of, of Israel. And then notice verse 2 before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. These two of these three tribes form the centerpiece of the northern kingdom of of, of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. Benjamin was sort of half in, half out with the southern kingdom and with the northern kingdom. And we know as well, as you look down the the way there in verses um, eight and following, the, the vine imagery that shows up that we'll discuss later also hints to the same reality. You see, what, what, the, what the psalmist is pointing us to the psalmist is pointing us to a problem with the northern kingdom. The psalmist is saying to us, the, the, the focal point of this, of this psalm, the hurt that we read with the tears and such that will follow, is something is, wrong with the North, something is wrong with the northern kingdom. And they're under threat of conquest by the Assyrians, is what we know from history. But what's the big deal even more than that? The big deal is this. If you look with me at verse 4, Notice what the question is. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? 
You see, what's behind this is, is this, that the worship of the northern kingdom was focused on these two golden calves, which again, God said, don't do this. And so to hear that God is angry with their prayers, it's pointing us to this reality that something inherently was dreadfully wrong with their worship altogether. They, in their minds, they were checking the right boxes, they were doing the right things. But what they were doing was idolatry, and that led to this problem. And it also led to gross injustice and, and, and all kinds of um, mis, misliving together. And the result was that God was angry with those people's prayers. Why does this matter? Look again with me at verse 3. Actually, before that, look at verse 1 again. We're going to jump around a little bit today. Notice the reference there, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. God is the one who's enthroned upon the cherubim. The cherubim is, we, we would think of them today as angels, but not the little babies with the harps and, and small little wings, something much more drastic than that. But that, that part of verse 1 is referencing the Ark of the Covenant that was at the centerpiece of God's worship. Psalm 80 was written, it tells us, by Asaph, who was a part of the southern kingdom. He and his, his choirs were a part of the southern kingdom. So what we have here ultimately is this. We have the southern kingdom that was more faithful, but not fully so, looking at the northern kingdom who was completely unfaithful to the Lord their God, and this was their song together, the chorus in verse 3. Restore us, O God, let your face shine, upon, let your face shine that we may be saved. The southern kingdom, who was doing better than the northern kingdom, is looking at the northern kingdom and all of their idolatry, and they're not singing a song celebrating God's judgment. It's a song of corporate lament. It's a song written by those involved in the temple worship in Jerusalem, and they're choosing to grieve over this loss and to pray for restoration. And I cannot emphasize this enough. This is not a them prayer, like look at what they have the nerve to do. This is an us prayer. The prayer to God is restore us. They pray for healing, for a return to what God intended them to be, for unity. What would it look like for us to be shaped by this song this morning in our prayers? I want to walk through the text now. I'll try to do it as much in order as I can to keep us on foot task here. The first thing I want you to hear as we look at the first two verses is this. Part of praying restore us Part of praying a corporate lament for the church of God to, in this day and age even is to, is to pray with boldness. Again, notice where he begins, the very first words in our text in verse one, give ear. And then at the end of verse one, he says, shine forth. Then at the, look at the end of verse two, stir up your might and come to save us. This is calling God to action. And actually, if you look down at verse 14, he says, turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. The boldness is in calling the God of the universe, the sovereign ruler of all things, to action. There's an urgency to this prayer, and it's as if, as if they're saying that God is not listening, that he is distant, that he might even be asleep. The nerve of some people. And yet, this is the word of God inviting us to pray with this kind of boldness. This prayer speaks to him directly out of this need. God, we need you to act here and now because of what we see happening. Most likely what is happening is that this is close to the time when Assyria would enter in and fully vanquish and conquer and destroy the northern kingdom altogether. And this is the kingdom of the, the people of God praying for their brothers and sisters that God would come and save them and protect them, that he would come and save and protect us. Again, look at verse 1. Uh, such boldness they're calling to the one who himself is, is bold himself. 
Look again at verse 1. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. The ark was the center of, of temple worship. It was God's presence with his people. You see, as they're crying out, they're not crying out to a vague deity. They're not crying out with optimism and some vague sense of hope. What they're crying out for is that the one who is both holy and the one who is near, the one who is present with his people, that he would remind them of his presence by shining forth. Beloved, this is boldness. There's a directness and a boldness here that's refreshing, isn't it? Some of us may need help in this area. As a child, I can remember my mom saying things like, John, when was the last time you cleaned your room? Which really wasn't a question, because then she would say something like, John, don't you want to clean your room today? This was an ongoing theme in my life, um, by the way. Um, you know, things like, don't you want to clean your room? And my thought is, well, no, <laughs> isn't it obvious that I don't want to clean my room, Mom? But she was being gracious and kind, but what she needed to tell me was, John, go clean your room. And that's what she was telling me. Some of you are those, that people, the, the, person, the person that will ask the question instead of making the direct statement. And some of you are the people that make the direct statement. We need each other, of course. This text calls us to a boldness. To approach God, to not, make, to not like think about so much about the words to make sure we have the right formula that he'll answer us. But to cry out to the one who is in charge of all things and say, we need you to do this because if you don't, we will perish. We will not make it. This boldness is fascinating, isn't it? The need is before the writer and his first response is to ask God to act, to ask God to do something for his people. What might bold prayers for the church sound like from us today? What are our us prayers? Where do you long to see God act in the church? Maybe we need to pray as we look around us and see abuse of power and misuse of the word of God. Maybe we need to pray, God, would you help us live more faithfully in the gospel? Would you give us a greater sense of our sin and our need? Would you give us a greater urgency to forgive, to confess, and to find reconciliation with one another? Would you lead us to places of rest because we're so tired and exhausted? What do we know of God and his boldness toward us? What we know in the heart of the gospel is that God in his boldness entered into this world through his son, the Lord Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again in our place. He invites us in all of our, of our foibles, all of our misspeaks, all of our, all of our uncertainty and, and doubt and fear. He invites us to pray with boldness, to find him, to not try to make sure we say everything perfectly the, the right way the first time, but to run to him out of need and to see where he meets us. Pray with boldness, beloved. As we look at verses four to six, we also hear that we, we, I want us to hear the direction that God also calls us to pray with great honesty. Again, look at where verse four begins. We have, I've already read it a few times this morning, but look at the middle of verse four. He says, O Lord God of hosts. He's addressing the Lord, the covenant God, the God must, uh, with his armies in tow. And this is what he says next. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? The honesty is that he asks a question. He invites us to ask our questions of him. He writes, how long? You know that question because this is the spiritual version from the backseat of the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Why is this taking so long? This morning it's why is the power not back on yet? How long must we wait? Because that's what we're doing. 
This is fresh on my mind after driving to Florida and back with students a few weeks ago, not because the students were obnoxiously asking, are we there yet, are we there yet, are we there yet, but because the, the trip that we were hoping, the trip back that we were hoping to make in one day turned into two, and for some of us it turned into a flat tire, and others, a few of us it turned into a ho an unplanned hotel stay. This is the nature of traveling in weather and traveling by vehicle. How long, how long, how long? It's an honest question though, isn't it? Because it speaks into our reality, because time is a real thing. We have to wait for most things in life. Some of you are still waiting for things in life. And others of you can testify to us that yes, it's worth it, but it will take a long time to wait. But later in the song, the, psalm, the, the writer asks why as well. Why, is it, why did you break down the walls, he asks. These questions don't receive answers in the text. They're not smoothed over, they're simply left hanging for us to ask ourselves. They're part of groaning over what is lost in this world. But look with me at five, verses five and six and see what else the honesty, this honesty calls us to. You have fed them with the bread of tears, he writes, and given them tears to drink in full measure. He's, he's essentially saying, you've given us buckets of tears to drink and that's what we have to live on. It may sound indulgent or self-absorbed to us, but there's a freedom granted here to express this, to acknowledge we are grieving because we hurt, and all we have is our tears. What we have is our sadness to bring to you, O God. Beloved, this is honesty. But notice in verse 6 where he adds to this. He says, you make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Things have become difficult for us with our neighbors, he writes. And it's possible that even here that it's some, some who aren't responsible for the specific behavior that's being concerned about. They're saying, look, because of you by reputation, we're connected with you and our neighbors are a problem for us. And he mentions laughter. It's not a sitcom laugh track. It's the laughter of scorn and derision. The laughter of mocking at God's people for following God and trusting in him with all the trouble that they face. He invites us to express our hurt. Beloved, are you honest with God and with his people? Are we as a church honest about our questions? Honest about experiences that are so real for us? What questions do you have this morning that you need to ask? I invite you to ask them. I hope you hear that from this pulpit a lot because I know that I do. You need to know that if you have questions, we need to wrestle with those together. It's part of our responsibility as God's people. What are the questions that you have asking? Is God real? How do I know that God's real? How come God isn't answering my prayers? What do I do with all of the, the, the cultural things that are around me that I don't understand and I don't know how to respond to? Let's ask those questions together with great honesty. What experiences do you need to give voice to? Do you need to acknowledge to God and to admit to those around you? What are the, things that, what are the parts of your story that are, that are secret, that are hidden, that we wouldn't know about you if, if you wouldn't tell us, but we desperately need you to tell us about crises of faith, about lost jobs, about getting fired, about getting, being ashamed and embarrassed because of your sin. We actually need to hear those stories for one another because we're all feeling them too with you. What would it look like for us to pray and see God with honesty? As we go at the last stanza, if you will, verses 8 to 14, and then the, the bridge as well at the same time, I want us to hear one more thing. God invites us to boldness. God invites us to honesty. But I also want you to hear that God invites us to depth. Look with me at verse 8. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. 
This is a metaphor likening the people of God to a vine. And it actually shows up in the prophets, particularly in Isaiah chapter 5. And it's most likely Jesus' reference point in John 15, where he actually says, I am the vine. But notice what he does with this in this section. First of all, look at verses 8 to 11. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove, it out, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. This is an appeal to God's past work, isn't it? God planted and tended this vine, doing everything he could so that it might flourish in this environment. And beloved, that's exactly what it did. It grew and grew and it spread and spread. And so by the time we get to, to verse 12, why is an honest question in light of this? You see, the writer's appealing to God's commitment and his faithfulness to his people to finish what he has started among us and among the church and among his people. It's an appeal to God's past and present work. If you look at verse 15, he speaks of the stock of your right hand planted, the son, the son whom you've made strong for yourself, Again, this appeal to what God cares for, what he's concerned about. We'll look at verse 14 and 15, where he appeals, or verse 14, where he appeals more directly to God's compassion. He says, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. What he's doing here is he's doing something really fascinating. If, if you see the, the word there, turn again, in Hebrew, it's the same root word that, that he uses restore in verses 3, 7, and 19. He's making a connection point, but he's giving a further explanation. What he's crying out is that God would turn again and have regard, that he would care for what is so dear to him, that God would see what's happening and not just have more information because God doesn't need more information, but the implication is that God would act on behalf of his people for what he values so highly. But then look at verse 18. We see also an appeal to not only to, to God's past work and his compassion, but we see an appeal to our need. Verse 18 reads this, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. This is an acknowledgement that the people have turned back from God. It's, a, it's an acknowledgement of their rebellion. This is not God's people striking a deal. Like if you do this, we'll do this and we'll, everything will be happy. We'll, be met, we'll meet in the middle and we'll be even. This is the people of God crying out for their needs, saying we need you to give us life because you're the only place that we're gonna find true life and true joy and true happiness in this world. You know what this is? Beloved, this is repentance. This is the people of God admitting their need and turning to God in order to seek change because that's the only way that it will come about. Our shorter catechism, one of the question in the late 80s says this, repentance unto life, repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. I know those are some strange words and there's a lot there. But what I want you to hear this is repentance is turning from your sin not to the right path. It's turning from your sin to God who will set you on the right path. It is not you fixing yourself. It is not you taking care of business because you will not be able to do that. Repentance is knowing that God is merciful, resting in the mercy of God, and turning from the, the illusion, the idolatry, the sin, the lust, the anger, the pride, the arrogance, and everything else that we love ourse about ourselves, turning from all of those things to God himself, to the only one who can deliver us and give us life. 
as we learn to pray this way, what have you seen God do in his church in the past and the present that you want to lean into? It may be your own, st- your own story, which, which sticks so vividly in your own mind, but the way that God took you from one place and brought you to another place and is changing your life. Lean into that. Rest in that. See God's faithfulness to you and speak of that. Where do we need to seek his compassion? You may be the one feeling like you don't belong this morning. Imposter syndrome is a real deal, isn't it? You're sitting here thinking, I, I hope they don't find out about my, my week this past week. I hope they don't know, hear what I said to my kids this morning on the way to church. We need to know that because you need to know that God is compassionate. And together we need to lean in God's compassion. For abuse victims and for those perpetrators of abuse, we need to know that God is compassionate, that he is merciful, and that all who call out to him in need will find him and will be responded to. What does repentance look like for you? Where do you need to learn to repent? God invites us to pray with depth. Beloved, what it comes down to is this. God needs to be the solution because you and I are thoroughly the problem. And so this prayer with increasing intensity throughout the verses cries out to God. In fact, if you look with me one last time at the chorus, look at verse three. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Let your face shine. We need your delight. We need the light of your holiness to shine into the darkness of our lives because we can't see. But then look at verse seven. Restore us, O God of hosts. O God, you who lead your army in victory, restore us, he prays. Let let your face shine that we may be saved. And then look at verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. He adds the word Lord there with with small caps. The covenant name, Yahweh, the, the actual name that God gave to his people. When Moses was called to lead his people out of Egypt and he said, who, who do I tell him sent me? Tell them I am sent you. Tell them Yahweh sent you. This is God giving us his covenant name, his name that is his pledge of faithfulness to his people to deliver them from all of their sin and slavery. This is what is before us. This is what our prayer is before us. But we know the unsatisfaction of living in this world, don't we? Because we're still asking why. We're still asking how long. But notice one last time. Look at verse 15. We read over it it quickly earlier. The stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself. He speaks of the people of Israel even the wayward northern kingdom as his son. In fact, in Exodus chapter four, as, he, as he's calling Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, he says, then you will say to Pharaoh in verse, four, chapter, verse 22 of chapter four, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And that's exactly what God did. But then in Hosea chapter 11, written hundreds of years later, the prophet writes these words, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. God called his son out of Egypt. That verse familiar to anybody? Matthew chapter 2, Joseph and Mary were warned in a dream. Joseph was warned warned in a dream that Herod would try to kill all the, all the young, young males born in that, in that time period, in that rage. And verse four, 14 of chapter 2, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. 
And then verse 15 says this, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by his prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You see, in all of Israel's disobedience and all of their faithlessness and idolatry, they would never be enough. They would never be the, the, the perfect son that we all would long for. But that perfect son would come one day to make all things right and all things new. And we await him together today. We still today ask why and how long. But we know there will be an end to our questions. Because one day that son who is called out of Egypt will come back and make all things new. Beloved, the invitation is to pray together. Restore us, O Lord, that your face might shine upon us, that we might be saved. Let's pray. Father, in our need, in our hunger, in our thirst, in our weariness, we cry out that you would restore us. We pray that for ourselves. We pray that for your church. We need you to act, and we pray that you would do that. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.